Good morning, Wellspring family. I have the honor and privilege of introducing our preacher for this morning, who I'm very excited about. Some of you uh, know him as Pastor Gerald. If you were here in the early days of Wellspring, he was one of our founding pastors back in 2001 when this church first began in this building, although not this corner of the building. Um, long story there. Some of you know him as Uncle Gerald, or maybe you are friends of his family, or know him in some other ministry context. Many of you know and remember his mom, Husako, who was a beloved member, longtime member of Wellspring, until she passed away in 2020. And so it's a little bit like the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, which... If you're not familiar with it, it plays off the idea that everyone in the film industry has some connection to Kevin Bacon uh, one way or another. And so I guess the equivalent for us here on this island among Christians is the, the six degrees of Gerald Chenin. Because <laughs> it doesn't take too long. It doesn't take too long to find a connection in one way or another. But for me personally, he, he will always be Uncle Gerald because he knew my parents before I was born. And I can remember him from you know, some of my earliest memories as a toddler. And then when we went overseas to be missionaries, we would come back and visit him in different places, including the Bay Area, uh, where he lived for many years. And uh, even in high school, uh, I was connected and, and college when Wellspring started as well in the early 2000s. So Uncle Gerald, you may not know this, but I really looked up to you growing up um, as a uh, multi-talented role model for many of the things that I aspire to, including playing guitar, singing, playing basketball, um, learning to preach a good sermon, which I'm still learning, but you definitely showed me how to do that. And it doesn't hurt that he's also a, a fan of the 49ers and Giants who are the best teams, of course. So um, just had to slip that in there. But I'm really excited for what Uncle Gerald has for us today. So let's please give a warm Wellspring welcome to Reverend Gerald Chinen. Wow, thanks, Dad. That was, uh, I'm still learning how to preach too, actually. So that's good to know. You know, when Dan was a little boy, his uh, sister Cheryl was about to be born. And so Cheryl's parents, I mean, uh, Dan's parents called us to ask if we could stay with Dan uh, while Linda went to the hospital to give birth to Cheryl. And, and they said, sleep in our bed. So we slept in their bed. And the next morning, Dan came in and he looked at us. <laughs> and he said, I'm hungry. He probably doesn't remember that. So I want to really thank the pastors of the church, especially especially Pastor Rebecca, for inviting me to speak this morning. It's It's been a long time since I've been here. Um, I saw Han sitting there and Faye. And, you know, um, when we first started, we were actually meeting in the living room of uh, Dale and Bev's home out in Kailua. And Han was among the very first persons who attended the church. So it's great to see Han as it brings back a lot of memories. So I want to tell you straight away that I'm going to be sharing with you today about the presence of God, the presence of God. 
And there are three things about the presence of God that I hope that you can take with you and hope that it'll be encouraging to you. First, that God's presence brings peace and hope. Secondly, God's presence is known through God's goodness. And thirdly, God's presence is revealed in God's name. So I've been listening to the sermon series that your pastors and your guest speakers have been taking you through between finding God in difficult transitions. And I found it, I have found it personally helpful to me because I've actually been in a transition myself. I retired at the end of 2023, uh, 2022, after 45 years in ministry. It's hard to believe that. And I returned here to Honolulu in January after spending nearly 30 years, mostly in Northern California. I, I do love Hawaii. It is my birthplace. This is where I grew up. My wonderful family here is here, including Julie and Scott and Jeremy and Eric back there, a lot of family. And as Dan mentioned to you earlier, my mom, Eileen Fosaka-Chinen was here and uh, she passed away unfortunately in 2020, but she loved this church. I really thought that when I left, when we left in 20, uh, 2005, that she was going to go back to her old church. Turns out she loved this church. She loved Pastor Dale. She loved Pastor Dale more than me. So she, <laughs> she hung around. You know, our first service was actually the Sunday before 9-11. That was our very first service on the other side of this building. Now, moving back to Hawaii has been a very big deal for me. And primarily it's because I've changed and I have changed a lot. And Hawaii has changed too, no doubt. And I thought the transition for me would be much easier than it's been, but it's been taking me some time to adjust to retirement. Retirement is different than moving on to, some, to another job. It's just different. And so I've had many conversations with myself and many conversations with God. And I wondered if I made the right decision to come home. And there were days when I really felt extremely distant from God and actually very distant from myself, very distant from myself. But I hope you know that I'm, I think I'm past all of that and I'm past my, through my sadness and I think I found my footing again. And maybe I can share a little bit more with you in a future time how I've moved past all of that. Transitions, as you already know, can be really hard. Transitions can be really difficult because transition means change and change often means loss. But transition is also a journey. Transition is a journey. And thankfully, the journey that we go through most of the time is a self-discovery. We discover something about ourselves or many things about ourselves. And if we're really fortunate, we learn something about God. We learn something about God. Now, we have learned a lot about Moses in his journey during this sermon series, haven't we? Now, you talk about a person who's been through a transition, 40 years of a transitional period for Moses and the people. And I'd say for all that Moses went through, that that man is the man. He is the man. In the late 1940s, Joseph Campbell wrote a book entitled The Hero with a Thousand Faces. He had researched and studied cultures all over the world, and he discovered that in many cultures, there are very similar tales and stories and mythologies, which he referred to as the hero's journey. 
The hero's journey is when an ordinary person in their ordinary world hears a call to adventure into an unfamiliar world. And along the way, they receive assistance from other people, usually others who are older than they. And then the hero threshes, uh, crosses the threshold of safety into the unknown. And the hero or the heroine will face their fears and their doubts. And when they do, they will often slay giants or they will die trying. If they survive, they return to the ordinary world where they are forever changed and forever different. And now, if ever there was a hero's story, the one of Moses surely stands out. Larry told us weeks ago that Moses was leading a very ordinary life, shepherding flocks of sheep when God called out to him at the burning bush, right? And it turns out that the call was the easy part. The first giant Moses had to face was the Pharaoh of Egypt. And we learned over the weeks that this Pharaoh learned, learned we learned that he lacked human empathy and that he was an oppressive tyrant. Moses confronted the Pharaoh not once, not twice, not three times, but 10 times, 10 times. And the Pharaoh finally relented after the 10th and most horrendous plague, and then he set the Israelites free. But the Pharaoh was not accustomed to losing, so he was enraged and he was angry, and so he chased the Israelites to the Red Sea, where he, Pharaoh, and his mighty army met their demise. Pharaoh had assumed that swords and spears and chariots would destroy the fleeing Israelites. Instead, it was Moses with his wooden staff of all things. And that staff turned out to be far more useful and much more powerful than all the spears and swords that Pharaoh could muster. How is that for irony? Now, if Moses' story and journey ended at that point, we would honor him as a hero. Instead, leading what scholars believed were over a million people, a million people into the wilderness, that was a far greater challenge. Now, you've heard your pastors in this series talk about the constant monku monku, as the Japanese say, the bitter complaining of the people. But what tipped the scales for God and for Moses was the golden calf. Pastor Yumi, last week, with the help of some very helpful handmade visuals, <laughs> told us that while Moses was on Mount Sinai conferring with God, down below the people were pooling their gold together and they had asked Aaron to create a golden calf. You see, the people had equated God's presence with Moses' presence among them. And since Moses was gone for a while, they thought that God wasn't with them either. And so they created this elaborate statue. God, as one could imagine, wasn't very happy. In fact, in chapter 32, verse 34a of Exodus, we read God saying, But now go, lead the, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. See, my angel will go in front of you. For the rest of the journey, Instead of God's very presence being among them, God says an angel would be the, with them. It's good enough for me, if you ask me, but apparently for Moses it wasn't. 
And this is where we pick up today's reading from Exodus 33, verses 14 through 19. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim, proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I shall show mercy. I really do admire Moses for being so honest and so forthright with God. Moses is basically saying to God here, listen, God, you're the one who called me first. You're the one who called me in the first place. And you're the one who called Israel to be your people. You're the one who made the promise to bless us and that you would always be with us. You can't possibly leave us now out on our own because we won't make it. I doubt that Moses had that kind of whininess in his voice, but you know, you get the, you get the story. But I think we can relate to Moses here. I believe that deep in his heart, Moses knew that God would not withdraw from him. I think he really believed that in the deepest part of his heart, but he had a little anxiety about it because he knew that God had legitimate reasons for withdrawing God's presence from them and turning away. After all, that thing with that golden calf, it angered God. In creating that false God, it was the people turning their backs toward God, to God, and not the other way around. And there are times when we feel as though God may be withdrawing from us, but truthfully, when we really think about it, it's us. We're withdrawing our own presence from God. You know, at that time, Moses was a very seasoned, mature and faithful man of God. He had one of the most intimate relationships with God of any Old Testament character that we read about. He had multiple conversations with God at Mount Sinai last week's sermon, you know, when he was up there talking to God, that wasn't the first time he had spoken to God at Mount Sinai. In fact, in the beginning of this chapter, we're told that Moses often met with God in what was called the tent of meeting, the tent of meeting. And the writer describes those meetings that Moses had with God there in that tent as a friend having a conversation with a friend. What more, what more intimacy do you need? Now, I take a lot of encouragement from that because it doesn't matter where we are on our journeys of faith, where we are in our transitions in this life. We could be at the very beginning of a transition. We could be in the middle. We could be near the completion, but we all need reassurance that God is with us. In verse 14, God tells Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, God may be referring to the end of Moses's journey when Moses reaches his death, his final rest. But I think by rest in this context, it also means peace. And it also means hope. 
God wants Moses to rest his weary thoughts and be at peace that God is with him and will be with him and the Israelites. That is what the presence of God means, having a sense of hope and peace. Now, from 1989 to the year 2000, I served a historic Japanese American congregation in San Mateo, California, in Northern California. When I got there, many of the Issei and the Nisei, the first and second generation Japanese Americans, were still alive. And most of them had been incarcerated during the Second World War. You might remember, if you had a good history teacher, that when World War II broke out, our government, our government illegally imprisoned nearly 120,000 American citizens of Japanese ancestry, most of whom lived on the West Coast. But about 3,000 were here, and they were imprisoned in Honouliuli. You remember? Some of you might remember that out in Waipahu. The 10 or so imprisonment camps spread across um, the mainland were built in arid desert areas where the days were brutally hot and the nights extremely cold. I remember one of the Nisei members of my church in San Mateo, whose family and, and she were imprisoned in Topaz, Utah. And she was telling me that although life in the camp was extremely harsh and hard for her and her family and her friends, she would look up toward the horizon at sunset. She said, as the sun slowly set over the mountain, there were radiant colors, the most beautiful thing she had ever seen in her life. And she wondered to herself, how could such beauty emanate in such a desolate place? And despite the reality of her incarceration, that sunset every single night gave her hope and it gave her peace in a strange sort of way. It gave her peace. In her heart, she knew that God was with her and with the others in that camp. And she knew deep in her heart that God would see them through, even though she and all the others had no idea whether they would be released from camp. But nothing perpetrated against her or her friends and family, she really felt could not overcome them. Despite her circumstances, she had a deep sense of peace and of God's hope and God's presence. For my friend Setsu, it was that brilliant sunset juxtaposed against the desert terrain that brought her the peace and hope and a reminder of God's presence. Those colors against the darkening skies told her that God had not and would never abandon her or her family, that God would always be with her and with all of them. So, my Wellspring friends, what brings you that sense of peace and hope and of the presence of God? What reminds you that God hasn't abandoned you, no matter the circumstances you find yourself in? How do you know that God is with you? Or sure, I can tell you this much, a golden calf won't do it. It doesn't cut it. But perhaps it's that necklace of the cross that you wear around your neck. Perhaps it's the communion elements that you see on communion Sundays that give you that sense of hope that God is always with you, that God remembers you, that God has hope for you. Perhaps it's an unexpected text message or maybe a phone call or maybe an email these days. Someone just says, 
just thinking about you. What is it? What is it that helps you? So I want you to take a moment, write down one or two things that bring you the hope and peace of God. Write down one or two things that bring you the hope and peace of God. You can think about it when you go home too. You know, so often, in fact, 360 times in the Bible, we read these words from God. Fear not. Be not afraid. And these words are often accompanied by these words. For I am with you. I think we can release our fears and our anxieties and put our trust in God's promise to us that always, always God is with us. I said earlier that Moses, though a seasoned and faithful person, still needed some reassurance that God would continue the journey with him and the Israelites. And it turns out that Moses actually wants a little bit more from God. Moses wants a deeper understanding of God and a deeper relationship with God. So from verse 18 forward, we read, Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I shall show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, so there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. Does that sound familiar? Cleft of the rock to those of you who went to church when little kids, cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will walk away. I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. In 2004, when we were still living here, my son Ben was about eight years old. My son is with me, by the way. He moved back to Cal from California to Hawaii with me, so he's living with me. I, I thought he'd be gone by now, but on his own, but he's, he, anyway. So when he was about eight years old in 2004, I took him to the Sony Open. It might have been called Hawaiian Open still, but it was at the Wildlife Country Club to watch golfing pros. And just as we were walking in toward the first tee, you could hear this buzz and you could feel this energy coming from the crowd. Then all of a sudden you could see the crowd moving, moving toward the first tee. And there was a golf cart going by. It was Michelle Wee. You know Michelle Wee? She was 14 years old at the time. I caught a glimpse of her back and her long black hair and her looping earrings. You remember she used to wear those looping? earrings. So anyway, I thought to myself, wow, I've seen Michelle Wee. I saw her, but that's not really true. Is I just caught a glimpse of her, but it was enough for me just being in that afterglow in her presence, being in front of golf royalty. That was enough for me. And now Michelle and I are on first name basis. Of course, now we know. <laughs> Pastor Yumi, she's so gullible. <clears throat> I only wish we were on first name. Michelle wishes she knew me. 
six degrees, you know, maybe she does somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> Friends of mine often ask me, why do you believe in God when you can't see God or you can't even prove that God exists? My answer seemed good to me, but often so unsatisfactory to those who are asking the question. You know, I'd love to be able to say that I was in the room where it happened, <laughs> when God showed up and I saw God's face. I'd love to be able to say that. And I'd love to be able to say, I know exactly what God looks like. And I think we all want to say, I've seen God. I really have. But throughout all the scriptures, we're told that no one can see the face of God. Why is that? Because it's too awesome. It's too majestic. And most of all, it's too overwhelming. We wouldn't be able to comprehend it at all. In fact, in our passage today, the closest Moses could get to God was seeing God's back passing by and as, as God's glory and presence was passing by. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that for now, for now, while we live on the earth, we can only see ourselves and we can only see God as though we're looking in a darkened mirror. We can never really see the true image of ourselves nor of God. We are still on a journey to God and to ourselves. What, Moses, what God tells Moses is that Moses will see God through God's goodness, through God's goodness. And God's goodness is captured in God's grace and God's mercy. In Genesis 1, when God completed creation, it says in verse 11, God saw everything that he made, and indeed, it was very good. I read a wonderful book last year by Lisa Sharon Harper entitled The Very Good Gospel, and I'd recommend that book to you, The Very Good Gospel. And she gave me insight into this phrase, very good, and into what good and goodness really mean. The term very good in the Hebrew is the Hebrew term tov meod, tov meod. And it means abundantly good, extremely good, exceedingly good. We think that the individual, individual things that God created were good in and of themselves. So we think God was saying, the sun that I created, that's very good. The oceans that I created, they're very good. The human beings that I've created, they're very good. So we may think that goodness resides in the thing created, but in Hebrew thought, goodness actually existed between things. Goodness existed between things. So goodness actually comes from the connectedness and relationship of all things. So when God created the universe, when God created this world, things were very good between humans and the earth, the Aina. Things were exceedingly good between the human beings in the garden, Adam and Eve. And things were abundantly good between God and the humans in the garden. And that was God's plan all along a deep goodness among all created things. And this is where we get our understanding of the Hebrew word shalom, 
the word peace. There was peace among all of creation and with God. God's goodness and God's shalom is about wholeness. It's about health and it's about the thriving of all humanity and all of the earth. God's plan at creation and forward was always about inclusion, about connectedness, about relationship, and about collaborativeness. And what made Israel and what makes us the Church of Jesus Christ so distinctive is that we are the ones who are called to live God's goodness and shalom for all of humanity and for all of the earth. We're called to live into that goodness so that all of the all of humanity and all of the environment might thrive. In Exodus 33, Moses doesn't know it, but his hero's journey just got a lot bigger. The journey to the promised land was just the beginning. God is going to share all of God's goodness, all of God's shalom with Israel so that they would be a blessing to others. So let me ask you, and I ask myself these questions as well. How have you experienced God's goodness and shalom? And how can we bless others with God's presence and God's goodness? How can we share the shalom of God so that others, including our environment, may thrive? My mom was born in Lahaina. And so I've been thinking, and I'm sure all of you have as well, thinking much about Lahaina and all of Maui the past few weeks, and especially about the families of victims who have died and for families who still don't know where some of their loved ones are. And I think we have all felt sort of a collective shock and sadness over these events. And I would not be surprised if some people are struggling with their faith and wondering, especially those in Maui, if they've been abandoned by God. Because surely some feel abandoned by authorities. With that being said, I'm also very overcome with gratitude to hear about the many individuals and organizations such as Wellspring stepping up to contribute to the needs of the people of Maui. But I think that this particular tragedy for us is a call to us, to the church, to continue to be the goodness and the presence of God long after the news cycles move on to something else. I think it may be a distinctive call to us as the church to be in this for the long haul. You know why? Because we're connected. We're connected. Finally, God's presence is revealed in God's name. In verse 19, God says to Moses, and I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And it is in the next chapter, chapter 34, that God reveals the breath of God's name. In chapter 34, five to seven, it says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding with steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation. My first name, Gerald, means spear thrower. 
may be impressive. I don't know. <laughs> My middle name, Tetsumi, means strong and beautiful. Some people live into their names. Other people do not. But God certainly lives into God's name. These characteristics of God from chapter 34, these are inherent characteristics in the name of God. And they reveal how God acts when God is present with us. And the last sentence is key for us for the thousandth generation. A commentator that I read mentioned that the Hebrew word Yahweh or Yahweh is used in these verses in chapter 34, which has been translated into the English word Lord. Yahweh has an etymological tie to the Hebrew word, a Hebrew verb that means to be, to be. This word then traces its roots to the name of God, the name of God that God shares with Moses in Exodus 3, 14. When Moses asked God for God's name, God says, I am who I am. God simply was from, God was simply from before creation and during creation and will continue to be long after we are gone from this world. And when the world has met up with God in Christ's return, the name of God reveals that God has always been present from generation to generation to generation to generation. There is nowhere we have been or ever will be that God has not been present. I find that pretty amazing. Reading from Eugene Peterson's The Message, Psalm 139 in part says, if there is any place, is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit is the way he puts it, to be out of your sight. If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there waiting. And then I said to myself, oh, he even sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed in the light. And it's a fact. Darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. Of course, he doesn't have that whiny kind of voice. You know, for some, knowing that they cannot possibly escape God's presence might make them feel guilty. Because in that moment, they're not living their best lives. So you can feel guilty about that. But for sure, when we are in the midst of a crisis or a challenging event or a transition, as it were, it is a huge relief, at least to me, to know that even in the darkest places, in the darkest times in my life, even if I should choose to withdraw, God does not. That God is with me and God promises to continue to be with me. In the Gospels, during Jesus' own heroic journey, he had this conversation with his disciples. And we can read about it in, the, in three of the Gospels. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answer him, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say some other prophet or one of the prophets. And then Jesus gets down to business and he looks his disciples in the eyes and he says, who do you say I am? Who do you say 
I am. Did you catch that little phrase? I am. I am. Jesus bears the name of God. Jesus is God. And wouldn't you know it, one of the names of Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. So, so the relationship that we have with Jesus often determines just how much and how often we trust that God is with us. So these questions to consider. What does it mean to you that God has been and always will be present in your life? What does it mean to you that God has been and always will be present in your life? And what name of God is most encouraging to you right now in your transition or journey? And I want to have Stacy put up some of the names of God that we're probably familiar with, and there are more. But which of these names for you now encourage you for wherever you are in your journey? Perhaps I can have, I'm, I'm putting more responsibility on the staff here, but maybe you, you can send this out to the church members. What name of God gives you the most encouragement now? When I was at Lafayette or in the Presbyterian Church from 2007 to when I retired, one of the persons on staff there was a man named Greg Morai, and Greg was what we considered on staff our uh, composer in residence. He was actually our contemporary worship person. Unfortunately, Greg died suddenly of a heart attack just a few years ago, and he was just in his 50s, and it, it crushed me that he died. <clears throat> because Greg and I were really good friends. For one thing, we're the only Asians on the staff. <laughs> it was a large, very large Caucasian church. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that we were the only Asians. So we had this really deep connection with each other. I could ask Greg if I was preaching on a Sunday. I could ask him during the week, hey, I'm thinking about speaking about this. Could you write a song? And he would do it. One Sunday, I was preaching, uh, preaching about the movie Linsanity, about Jeremy Lin. You know Jeremy Lin. The... You guys don't know Jeremy Lin? Come on, people! Jeremy Lin was among the, I think he was the first Asian-American professional basketball player. And there was a movie about him called Linsanity, because back in New York, he had this crazy five or six games where he was just the talk of the town. He was on Time Magazine's cover two weeks in a row. That's how powerful he was. So I, I told Greg, I'm preaching from that movie, Linsanity. Can, we, can you write a song about that? And he asked me, what's your theme? So I told him a little about it. He said, why don't you come to my house? So we sat together for like two hours, and he wrote a song. He wrote a song that the choir sang the following week. Anyway, all of that being said, Greg was a fantastic songwriter. And he wrote this song, and I hope you, can, you, you don't mind indulging me for a moment. I'd like to sing one of Greg's songs for you. And it's about this question, who do you say I am? Mind you, I haven't played guitar or sung for people in a few years now. We had so many musicians at the church and singers that they didn't need me.
Hear the people <clears throat> ask about me. What's the nature of this man? He is John or Elijah. Well, who do you say I am? Am I prophet? Am I spirit? Am I ordinary man <clears throat> who was broken, who was crucified? Well, who do you say I am? <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I am silence. I am stillness. I'm the lion and the lamb. Before Moses, before Abraham, before all of you, I am. After all of you, I am. <clears throat> <clears throat> 